In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. May His grace and His blessing be with us now and unto the age of all ages. Amen. I welcome all of you once again to our Orthodox Bible study. As always, I'm happy to share the Word of God with you. This is our 21st week studying the book of Genesis. And if you recall from last time, we introduced the pivotal figure of Abraham, or Abram as he was called before, and his wife Sarah, or Sarai, as she was called before. We left them as they were leaving Egypt with great wealth after Pharaoh kidnapped Sarai and tried to make her his wife. The Lord did not permit this, however, and Pharaoh was afflicted with different plagues every time he tried to touch her. Finally, when Pharaoh realized Sarai was Abraham's wife and not his sister, he gladly permitted them to depart from Egypt with much treasure. At this point, I would like to compare and contrast the figures of Abram and Moses. Generally speaking, we can see the work of the Holy Spirit in the many similarities we find between the different figures and stories in the Holy Scripture. One example is the story of Babel on the one hand and the Hebrew captivity in Egypt on the other. You will remember from earlier in Genesis that the people of Babel who built the tower in rebellion using brick were descendants of Ham, just as Pharaoh and the Egyptians who were oppressing the Hebrews were likewise descendants of Ham. And both of them are making brick and building things. And we can say that they're doing things in rebellion or opposition to God and his people. So we see a similarity uh, here that is a type and a foreshadowing of things to come. And that will become more important and more clear as we continue our study. There are five parallels that we can identify between Abram on the one hand and Moses on the other. First of all, we can see that Abram and Sarai are forced to go into Egypt because of famine, just as the Hebrews were in Egypt originally because of a famine that came upon the land in Genesis 45. So we see that similarity that both of them find themselves in Egypt because of famine. Second, the character and personality of Pharaoh in both stories is the same, even though it was a different Pharaoh dealing with Moses than the one who dealt with Abram. He is simply a capricious and arrogant ruler in both accounts. Third, just as Abram and Sarai outsmarted Pharaoh to escape from him, so also did Moses outsmart Pharaoh to escape from him along with the Hebrews. Fourth, Egypt is afflicted by plagues in both stories. When Pharaoh tried to defile Sarai, he was smitten with plagues until he realized she was someone's wife. Throughout Moses' encounter with Pharaoh, he and Egypt are smitten with plagues as he refuses to release the Hebrews. Fifth and finally, in both stories, the righteous people of God leave Egypt greatly enriched. 
Pharaoh gives to Abram and Sarai significant wealth as they leave, while the Israelites under Moses plunder the wealth of Egypt as they depart from that land. So we see here five parallels between Abram and Sarai in Egypt on the one hand and Moses and the Hebrews in Egypt on the other. Now after exploring these similarities, we return to the story of our beloved Abram who at this point had just left Egypt with a great number of possessions. As a result, a dispute between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of his nephew Lot arises. And we can see how Abram responded to this dispute. First, despite the fact that he is Lot's elder uncle, he essentially yields to Lot and allows him to make the best choice of the land. He therefore responds with humility and restraint for the sake of making peace. And this is really a wonderful lesson for us when dealing with family conflict as well. For Abram, making peace in the family was more important than anything else. So to resolve this dispute, Abram, despite the fact, as we said, he is Lot's elder uncle, he essentially tells Lot to take his pick of the land. Our father among the saints, St. John Chrysostomos, focuses on Abram's response and praises his virtue in this case. He observes that Abram, the elder and more senior of the two, shows great humility and restraint by addressing his younger nephew as his brother. He elevates his nephew to his own level and does not assert his ranking as the older of the two. Why does he do this? He does this for the sake of making peace. When this family dispute arises, Abram chooses the way of making peace at any cost and defers to his young nephew even though this action was unheard of in that patriarchal ancient society in which seniority and rank and age was of utmost importance. We can see Abram's response here as a lesson for all of us in dealing with family disputes. Too often we see families torn apart by squabbles and arguments and divisions, and what we learn from Genesis 13 is the virtue of responding to family disputes by choosing peace, even if choosing peace means we must yield our position and prestige in the family. When we do this, God will bless and reward us just as he blessed and rewarded Abram. As we're going to see later on, even though Abram yields to Lot and gives him the choice of the land, it is the descendants of Abram, not the descendants of Lot, who will eventually inherit all of this land. So by his virtue, Abram shows us the meaning of our Lord's beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. That literally happened with Abram because he chose peace. And because of that, his descendants will inherit the land, the earth, later. Now Lot looks around and sees that the valley around the Jordan River is quite fertile. It's green. There's a lot of water. It looks like paradise. We read in Genesis that Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. He sees this as an asset and therefore chooses this area for himself 
which was to the east. Abram, taking the leftovers, goes to Canaan. Now we have to pause here and say that Lot's decision is perhaps the worst real estate transaction in the history of the world because Lot ends up in Sodom. We see that Lot chose the land based on the physical beauty of the place, but he failed to accurately research the kind of people living there. And this is a recurring theme that we've seen over and over again in Genesis. For example, our ancestor Eve looked at the fruit of the tree of knowledge and saw that it was good for food. This beautiful fruit hanging on the tree looked so appealing, but when mankind partook of it, sin and the consequence of sin, which is death, entered into the world. Also later on in Genesis, we see the sons of God commit a grave mistake in choosing the beautiful and promiscuous daughters of men as wives. What's the result of their choice? The generations of mankind become more and more wicked until the whole earth, with the exception of Noah and his family, must be destroyed in the great flood. In the same tradition of making decisions for the wrong reasons, Lot chooses the well-watered and fertile valley around the Jordan River. Now compare Lot's action to that of his virtuous and righteous uncle Abram. Even after Abram defers to his nephew and shows great love and respect, Lot doesn't do anything. Lot does not even offer to defer to Abram. Lot does not even choose the lesser parcel of land for himself. Instead, following the ways and logic of the world, he tries to gain the larger advantage and makes a self-interested, selfish choice. And we're going to see later on how this choice becomes a great problem for him. On the other hand, Abram acts in a way that's above the world. He defers to his younger relative, as we said, and gladly accepts what is perceived as the lesser of the two lands. He displays great virtue, and because of this, God blesses him abundantly at this point. We can read together exactly how God blesses Abram in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. What a beautiful blessing. God promises Abram the land as far as his eyes can see. God gives this land not only to Abram, but also to his descendants who will be as numerous as the dust particles of the earth. St. John Chrysostomus in homily 34 on Genesis calls our attention to the promptness with which and the extent to which God rewarded Abram for his humility. Because of his great virtue, Abram is given a great reward. What we see in God's words is essentially an affirmation 
of the covenant between God and Abram, which we studied earlier in Genesis. How does Abram respond to this blessing? Genesis 13, 18 tells us, Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So once again Abram builds an altar to the Lord and worships him. We see throughout Abram's life that he persistently builds an altar to the Lord and serves him wherever he goes. This is a good lesson for all of us as to how we should respond to God's blessings and gifts. Abram teaches us to respond with thanksgiving, with worship, and with service. The problem many of us have today is that we don't recognize the work of God in our lives on a consistent basis. When Abram saw God's work and blessing in his life, he consistently responded with thanksgiving and prayer. For us today, we oftentimes don't give thanks or pray nearly enough because we oftentimes fail to recognize God's work and blessing in our lives. It's a good reminder for us to see God in our lives continuously and to respond to Him accordingly. St. John Chrysostomus makes an interesting observation here on just how Abram gives thanks and worships God even before God's promises are fulfilled. For example, in that last passage we heard, God promised to give Abram the land to him and his numerous descendants. But at the time God made this promise, Abram did not have even a single descendant. You'll remember that his wife Sarai is barren. Despite this, Abram does not show the slightest doubt in God's promise. Immediately he gives thanks and worships God. This is another lesson for us to trust God and not to doubt his promises and his care, irrespective of how impossible or unlikely they may seem in our estimation. Look, for example, at Abram. God tells him he will have descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth, at a time in Abram's life when he is almost a hundred years old, and on top of that his wife is barren. Can you imagine a more impossible scenario? Despite the impossibility of what God promises, according to our human understanding, Abram manifests great faith and believes in God's promises. He gives thanks before anything is actually given to him because he trusts in God. What an amazing faith. And this is why as we read the story of Abram, we see him as a perfect example of faith. We now come to Genesis 14, which begins with a description of how Abram's nephew Lot finds himself in some trouble when he and his possessions are carried away by neighboring kings who are waging war against certain other kings. This is from Genesis 14, verses 1 through 12. Essentially what happens is that Lot is captured in a raid around Sodom by a neighboring king. This king also carries away the horses of the king of Sodom. When word reaches Abram, he immediately gathers his 318 servants. Yes, that number is correct. The same number of bishops who 
attended the council of Nicaea and saved the church from the heresy of Arius. Abram gathers these 318 servants and pursues this raiding king until he recovers Law and his possessions. We see once again Abram's great virtue in what he does. Remember that Law acted selfishly in his dealings with Abram. Despite this, and despite the fact that he is an old man at this time, Abram immediately dispatches his household and pursues the raiding king until he saves his nephew and his possessions. Many people following the ways and logic of the world would have probably said, it serves Lot right, he got what he deserved. Many might have even moved and taken Lot's land, now that he was out of the picture, but not Abram. This righteous man chose to do what was right, irrespective of what happened in the past. He accepted with humility the indignity of his nephew's treatment, and when his nephew was in need, he risked his own life and the lives of his household servants to rescue and save him. Now after Abram recovers not only Lot and his possessions, but also the possessions of the king of Sodom, we read in Genesis 14.17 that the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abram. And at this point, we are introduced to one of the most enigmatic yet important figures in the Holy Scripture, Melchizedek. As we have seen thus far in the book of Genesis, we are usually provided with some kind of genealogy or family history of the important characters we encounter, but this, however, is not the case with Melchizedek. He suddenly appears out of nowhere in the narrative and leaves just as mysteriously as he came. Let's see what Genesis 14 says about him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. We learn essentially five things about Melchizedek, the king of Salem, in this passage. First of all, he was a king. The city over which he was king was named Salem, which is an old word meaning peace that was also used to describe the holy city Jerusalem. David the prophet uses this name for the city in Psalm 75 when he says, In Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel, in Salem also is his tabernacle, and his dwelling place in Zion. The great Jewish historian Flavius Josephus interpreted the similarity to mean that Melchizedek founded the city of Jerusalem. We don't know for sure if this is the case, but this is one hypothesis. We know that Melchizedek was a king also from the meaning of his name. In Hebrew, his name is Melech Hasidic, which means the king of righteousness. Also, St. Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews calls him the same thing in Greek, which is Basileos Dikeosinis. So Melchizedek, we can see, was a king. Secondly, he was a priest, and not just a priest, but a priest of God Most High. In fact, he is the first person to whom the Holy Scripture 
gives the title priest. The Hebrew word used here is Kohen, and it is first applied to Melchizedek. The fact that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High appears to be more important in the Holy Scripture than the fact that he was a king. In the Psalms, the Messiah's kingship is said to derive from the kingship of David, but the priesthood of the Messiah corresponds to the priesthood of Melchizedek. We all remember the famous verse from the Psalter that confirms this fact for us. This is Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood of Melchizedek also has some bearing on the name of the city of Jerusalem. In Greek, the word for priest is hierus. That is why, for example, a priest monk in the Eastern Orthodox Church is called a hieromonk. It's a combination of the word for priest and monk. Josephus believed that the name of Jerusalem comes from the words hierus salem, which means priest of Salem. Whether or not this is where the name Jerusalem comes from is not confirmed in history. It's again one hypothesis. But the most important thing to remember about Melchizedek is that his priesthood is eternal. St. Paul speaks about this in Hebrews 7.3, saying, He without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. This is why we do not hear about his death in the Holy Scripture. It is a symbol of the eternal priesthood of Christ. You'll notice that we refer to this fact when we speak about the priesthood of our patriarch, uh, His Holiness the Pope, or any of the metropolitans or bishops or even priests. When we recite that verse to them, we are speaking about how they hold the eternal priesthood of Christ. It is the hope of any patriarch, bishop, or priest that after they complete their mission here on earth, they may be counted worthy to continue the service of the priesthood with the 24 presbyters before the throne of God in heaven. The third thing is we see how Abram gives a tithe or one-tenth of everything to Melchizedek. In his epistle to the Hebrews, St. Paul speaks about the significance of this in the fact that Abram's descendants would eventually give the same tithe to the Levitical priests who were after the order of Aaron. This Levitical priesthood, as you will recall, is the priesthood of the Jews. This is the priesthood we see throughout the Old Testament. But the priesthood of Melchizedek is different. The fact that Abram gives a tithe to Melchizedek shows the superiority of his priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. Fourth, we see that Melchizedek is invested with the authority to bless Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This fact also reveals the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek, inasmuch as the lesser is blessed by the greater.
Fifth, we notice that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. When you read this passage in translated English, you fail to see the richness of the act. But in Hebrew and also in the Septuagint in Greek, the verse gives you the impression that he brought out bread and wine because he was a priest. It's very easy to read the passage and think that the bringing of bread and wine was a coincidental or unrelated act. However, we should remember that the passage tells us Melchizedek brought out the bread and wine because he was a priest. Therefore, the bringing out of bread and wine was a priestly act here. And of course, what Melchizedek did here was a type of what the true high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, did in the Lord's Supper before his crucifixion. Melchizedek's action, therefore, is a type of the mystery of the Eucharist in the Church. Also, Melchizedek himself is a type of Christ. For example, the fact that he has essentially no family history prefigures our Lord Jesus Christ because our Lord has a mother but no father in his humanity, whereas he has a father but no mother in his divinity. Many other church fathers spoke about how Melchizedek prefigured Christ and the mystery of the Eucharist, and for this reason he is an extremely important figure even though there is a dearth of information concerning him in the Holy Scripture. God willing, next week we will continue our study of the book of Genesis and find out what happens next. And glory be to God forever. Amen.